Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, Scott. Hey, Mike. How are you? Great. Good. Good. Yeah, this did work. Technology is under control and we're actually getting ready and we're just going to go right into it. Johnny should be on in a second, too. So why don't we just start recording and... Sure. People get to people get to hear a little behind the scenes, so this is kind of cool. Um, so, how's the audio quality for me? Audio quality sounds great. How does how do great. I sound? Like good. good. This is the first. It's like the new technology for me and uh, the new app. And I'm actually using my uh, my head my earbuds instead of just talking into the phone. So hopefully everybody right. will hear better sound quality. So here we are. So I'm going to start right in, and I'm sure Johnny will show up in just a few too. Um, everybody, thanks for stopping by. Welcome to the tent. Um, a very special podcast today we have one of one of the most requested guests did you know that did i tell you that um mike that you were like I one did of, not know yeah that. you're our most requested guest everybody wants That's you on surprising. mike tucanardi <laughs> um you know mike probably know mike from his work with amazonas magazine you definitely know him from the photos that are showing up all over our website and uh all the cool uh, stories that he's done he's done a guest blog for us in the past do you remember that you actually did a guest blog for us i do <laughs> yeah it was a very cool guest blog and those of you that um we'll, we'll probably talk about it down the line those of you that actually purchased fish from us down the line and there's johnny Siati. are you there johnny i i am here he's here hi. and jo- johnny say hi to mike mike say hi to johnny you guys all good hey, hey. good everybody's here so i, I was just kind of going over the uh, the resume or at least our uh, our experiences with uh, with mike i was telling everybody we uh we've we've seen mike's footprint all over our site with his amazing underwater photos and we're gonna have to talk about that and uh when we did our little experiment with tenon live mike was their guy for the fish still one of the best in the business and just uh um just constantly working with fish and obsessed with fish probably more than anybody I know <laughs> freshwater wise <laughs> that's a good that's a good thing so you know I wanted to um start off today we're just gonna just gonna have a good old discussion between fish friends because I think that's what everybody wanted to hear and you know Mike if you if you will I want to kind of start off just with a real quick background of what your essentially what your your background in the hobby is when did you start in the hobby that kind of thing sure um, yeah, like most people, I guess I started pretty young. Um, I want to say my first fish tank was around 10 or 11 years old. And I actually kind of went at it a backwards way. I was doing dart frogs and reptiles as, as a young kid, like nine, 10. Um, oh. I had, yeah. <laughs> so I, I didn't know that. Doing that and I was really I'm serious. shaking my head nodding here. I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> right? I was really seriously into reptiles. And then my first real aquarium was, and was a nano reef, a 10 gallon reef tank. And nice. yeah, and so I was really big into saltwater through my teen years. And then um, starting at like 13, I started working at the local fish store near me and uh, because I knew reptiles mostly. And then they needed help with fish all the time. So I got dragged into that and then um, really developed an appreciation for freshwater fish. Yeah, around like 15 or 16. And that never left. <laughs> yeah. So and 
And, and, and the, the thing that I found interesting, too, is that you've not only obviously worked with fish, you've traveled to many of these locations around the world. And uh, we could talk about that. Like, what is your favorite sure. location that you've been to oh, for, man. for fishing? <laughs> well, I've been doing since we've been uh, stuck at home, you know, recently <laughs> for quite some time. This is like day 20 of self-isolation for me. Right. Um, I've been doing some reminiscing, going through some old photos and stuff of the travels. And yeah, there's, oh, man, there's so many different places out there that really stand out um obviously the amazon basin is unbelievable it's so diverse and so incredible yeah. but probably if i'm if i'm thinking about it like maybe two places stand out i think um the the lower tapajos river in brazil where mm-hmm. it's like the world capital best wild discus in the world it's a clear oh. wa- yeah it's a clear water region with lots of lakes and streams but some of them are quite tinted they're just very clear and mm-hmm. um, uh, just absolutely gorgeous. I mean, it's it's just one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen in my life. Uh, I could spend a year there. So that's really? where, that stands out. <laughs> wow. Now, now you know that like I'm obsessed with your your Agapo and Igarape photos. Sure. Uh, the underwater where you go into those things, and I kind of wanted to talk to you about those. When, sure. when you the the one in particular, there was a video did I think it was uh, you did call it was Igarape did direct. Kua, Daraqua. I believe. Daraqua. Daraqua. I can't say it right. But that has been the most used and quoted, and sure. I don't know if you've noticed, in like biotope um, oh, yeah. contests. People love to use that as the basis for their aquarium, which I think is amazing. It's um, it's perfect because it's literally, you know, it's almost like you could take, it's small enough and shallow enough that you could take a cross-section of it and create an aquarium around it and almost exactly replicate it. And that's really hard to do with a lot of habitats, but that one's so it's such a micro habitat and so interesting that, and, and so full of life that I think you can actually, that one lends itself so well to a biotope aquarium. Absolutely. Absolutely. Have you, um, you know, at home, uh, cutting quickly to your home aquarium, what do you have going on right now? Like what, oh, what man. tanks do you have? Well, you know, uh, having a warehouse full of tanks been importing and wholesaling um, fish for several years now, uh, that took up a lot of my time, so I actually kind of downsized substantially. And um, of course, in the recent months, uh, I'm starting to the business has been really good. We've been busy, but I'm starting to have more free time because I have some help there um, and able to scale up a little more comfortably where I'm not doing everything. So right. um, I've actually set up several tanks. I've had my 90 gallon uh, display tank with the, that really awesome aqua decor background. Um, mm-hmm. I've had that running for like two or three years now, but I having a warehouse full of fish and importing from all over the world, it's really, <laughs> it's really tempting to just bring them. Right. I'm like, oh, those are coming home with me. And yeah. I do that a lot. So I had a Rio Nanai biotope for a while with those Nanai angels that mm-hmm. are just really mm-hmm. gorgeous and a bunch of other fish from that area. And then, of course, somebody wanted to buy the angels. So I was like, well, sure, that's a great opportunity to try something else. <laughs> so that tank tends to rotate and I also use it as a photo tank because it's got a really nice background. I can do a lot of photography work in it. So it's, mm-hmm. it's um, right now what's in there. I'm looking at it. It's um, I've got a group of eight Rio Negro heckle discus that just came in with my last shipment from Brazil. And nice. yeah, I just, I saw them in the bags and I was like, Ooh, you know, they'd, they'd <laughs> just be happier quarantining with me. So, uh, <laughs> so they're kind of, in there and with wild discus i usually like to give them about six weeks at least before i even offer them for sale so um these guys are just getting fat and happy in here um what else is in there there's an amazon puff where i just did some photos for because i needed photos 
uh, some festivums. Yeah, it's just a kind of hodgepodge, but it's a fun tank. That's um, cool. How are the how are the festivums? Are they uh, are they love, proving to I be hardy? Yeah, oh, super hardy. And um, if you've spent time in the wild in angelfish or discus habitat, you're mm-hmm. always going to see festivums nearby. They inhabit the exact same areas, um, and they're always they're almost always one of the more bold fish. So you usually see them come out first to check you out. And then uh-huh. sometimes the angels and discus will follow them because they feel like it's safe. So I always like oh, cool. them together. Yeah. What, what, how come they're not more common in the hobby? I mean, like, why don't we see more of those fish? <laughs> I, wish, be- I wish I knew, you know, um, they're beautiful. That's one of those fish since I was a teenager working at the pet store. I sold those really well because I pointed them out to people. I like them. And, right. you know, I think we were probably our store probably sold more of them than most wholesalers did because they're just, <laughs> you know, I liked them. That was it. Um, they get moderate size. They're really colorful. Mm-hmm. They're not mean. Um, they can be a little, you know, they can be a little pushy during breeding season. But like, you know, any cichlid is the same. But right. um, they're they're just such a cool fish. And having seen them in, a, in the wild a lot, I just really appreciate them. Yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting fish. It's one. It's like the checkerboard cichlid. Exactly. Everybody knows about it, sure. but not everybody. Everybody wants them all the time. Sure. And for some reason, they're just not commonly available. Sure. I mean, Johnny and I have talked about that, right, John? We were talking about the 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 uh, festivums and doing a tank around them, and we're like, we just don't. You don't see them very often. Yeah, so, you know, you see them, and and there's also um, I think different varietals or subspecies. Several. Yeah. It, it, so you know, it's it's hard to find groupings of them, and I think. Sort of the same thing ends up happening, like uh, with checkerboards, like uh, what dichrosis yep. or, or, or yeah. And so, I mean, you know, you've got different species there, and, and you'll see them come in, and sometimes they're mixed inside of a store, and, and it's really hard to to get a good group. Sure. Um, because I think just maybe it, either it's the lack of care on the collector or the wholesaler or the store isn't educated and doesn't know and. Um, I think that presents itself as kind of an interesting issue sort of segue is, you know, what you're passionate about tends to sell yep. <laughs> and people tend to gravitate to and have in their displays, but also at the same time, what you're knowledgeable in tends to be kind of what you're passionate about. And so that's a, that's a common issue yeah, uh, in, in hobby or in the industry. Yeah. And I think um, that definitely is, it's, it's this case with a lot of different, um, interesting south american fish that you maybe just don't see widely available if you get if you get one person who's knowledgeable about them at a store or an online retailer who is able to offer them the right species you know and knows a little bit about how to distinguish them that sort of thing uh it makes a difference and like that helps um so when i do ikido shipments i bring in the um the nanai festival which is mesonata morificus Mm -hmm. i bring those in Mm -hmm. a lot and i don't wholesale them very much but one of my my online retail partner aqua imports they sell the, they sell those through very well because they're properly id'd and mm-hmm. i think the niche collectors know what they're looking for they want something just like that with a point of origin and yep. the right species identification i think you bring up a good point too and that that's that was the thing that used to drive me crazy you know co-owning a coral propagation and importation facility is that it, you couldn't get proper id on every single thing down to the lo- the type locality or whatever right and there was always a question as to which acropora was uh, was from which you know locale and if it was this species or that with fish it's kind of the same thing though right i mean because there's there's geographical and absolutely uh, all kinds of variations right yeah and i mean that's something that i spend a lot of time probably to you know for no other reason in some cases than just my own um obsession with locality and, and knowing exactly where my fish come from 
Yeah. But, you know, the way I have um, my lists are is they have the river of origin in most cases with the fish or at least region of origin. And, you know, I worked with um, my, my exporters are really good. They tell me where things come from because I ask and most people mm-hmm. don't. But um, I try and track down and know exactly what comes from where. Um, and exporters now are really it's it's such a different game than was 10 or 15 years ago, because a lot of the exporters, especially if you look at a Brazil list, Every mm-hmm. single fish on there has river and a lot of times locality. Uh, really? Yeah, because they know um, a lot of those guys, a lot of their business goes to Asia. And, you know, people uh, who are really fish connoisseurs who are going to pay all that money for a fish from Brazil freighted over to Hong Kong or Japan. They mm-hmm. want to know where that came from. And um, that's trickled into the U.S. a bit, too, which is cool. That's great. Yeah. yeah well, you know, you know, it's good in talking, especially the kind of aquariums that we talk about here at Tannen all the time, you know not necessarily pure hardcore biotopes, but biotope inspired. And, you know, is we're as obsessed with the environment as we are with the fish. So knowing where they come from, I think that's, that gives you a huge leg up when you, if you're willing to do the research, I mean that I would like to see, I I would hope that would trickle down to the retail level too, that the stores go so far as to to following your lead on the ID. Yeah. I think some of the better stores are definitely doing that now too, which is cool. It's nice to see. Um, Yeah. And you know, it's something that I particularly like because I like doing setups again, not even necessarily a hardcore biotope, but when I'm stuck inside and it's snowing like it is right now in Colorado, and <laughs> I'm looking at my tank. I'm, I'm looking at a um, my Asian tank that I'm setting up. There's a uh, Chaka Bankanensis swimming around in there. Those big oh, wow. catfish. Yeah. And I'm yeah. like, oh, he comes from Peninsular Thailand, you know, probably Ryong province. And that's just cool because it brings me there. You know, it's a little, it's right. almost like I can picture where it came from and it's a, that's cool it's a warm and exotic place and and that has obviously had a role like the your aquariums that you've shared with us they have a very distinct look they yeah. you don't they're very theme oriented and very detail oriented and sure. i think that's that it's obvious that it's influenced by your travels yeah definitely um although i think you know my whole every my whole life i've been set up aquariums i've had so many different ones and I, they tend to look they always tend to evolve into a look that is similar. You know, um, when I was in Florida working for Seagrass Farms, my good friend Dave Parks, who's the uh, buyer mm-hmm. there, he joked that all my tanks are Tooch tanks. Tooch is my nickname there because right. they'd all end up being driftwood dominated, tannin stained, and a selection <laughs> of in- of gray and brown South American fish. So we like. <laughs> exactly. So we like. Don't want to detract from the tank. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, no. So, but it was funny because even if I started a tank with a different intention or going a different route, they always kind of evolved into that. What's what? You know, oh, John, that's, that's an interesting one though. Um, you know, and, and I talk about story in the aquarium environment, and um, I, I use it from, uh, you know, other design references and, and talking about what what's actually happening or what are we trying to say with, with each aquarium. And, you know, to some people, they might view all aquariums that you're doing as driftwood dominated and, and brown tinted water and, uh, you know, gray fishes, but it's the experience and the time behind each one that that sort of unearths each one of the subtleties and the nuances with it, which is really comes down to a trained eye. And so uh, not, not throwing anybody under the bus over there, but they, they may not recognize <laughs> the beauty or the, um, you know, the, uh, the more complex palette and that, that you're presenting. Sure. And I think, I think that's something that really we need to look at more deeply within the aquarium hobby is again, 
story and what's being told rather than just things at face value. Like, oh, yellowfish, great. Round fish, <laughs> perfect. You know, like that, that's sure. exactly that. I, I think that's a, um, yeah, I mean, the most rudimentary form of aquarium keeping is, is, is shapes and colors. And I think, you know, building story into that, that's an important role. And we need to talk about that. And, and you know, I, I remember, Mike, and I had this discussion, God, what, two years ago? Sure. We were talking about structural, what do we call it? Functional aesthetics and structural functional right. aesthetics. The, the, based on the environment, the fish evolved to live in a certain type of environment. So it makes sense to display them that way. So they interact with that environment as they would in nature. Exactly. Um, Right. I mean, and that's, yeah, that's something I talk about. And, um, you know, I've done a couple of club talks about biotopes recently and, and that's, mm -hmm. I bring that up exactly as you said, structural. And, and one of the things I talk about is, um, why freshwater fish are the way they are, why are aquarium fish look the way they mm -hmm. do and it's, and, and how they proliferate in certain environments. One of the things that in one of my slides is structural complexity of the environment creates more species because there's more niches to take advantage of so there's yeah incredibly diverse habitats like that igarape dodaraqua that's my video and you know where the cardinal tetras and checkerboards and apistos and a million species and in five square feet it's because there's deep structural complexity to the habitat mm, right that's an interesting one you know scott and i both observed this and it's something that i had never witnessed before um uh, I had a Tabajos, uh, you know, inspired uh, aquarium, which actually I think is going to go into, um, it's going to get, a, I think, a magazine cover. Nice. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's one of those things where the pencil fish in there, I, you know, as soon as I saw branches coming down into the water <laughs> and the fish went in and I was like, I can't tell the difference between the pencil fish and the branch. They're swimming at an oblique angle. Exactly. Uh, the, the top of them is, is, uh, you know, the same color as the top of the branch, the bottom is the same color of the bottom of the branch. I was like, Oh my this gosh. This is what they're the supposed to do. <laughs> right. And you know, it stems back to that whole story thing. I'm like, you know, there, there are things here with personalities and the way um, each one of these fishes, you know, occupies their own sort of little, little niche. <laughs> Um, I think it's just a really, really interesting one. And again, it's another area that that can really only be explored if you, uh, or you can, you can only present it properly. If you've had the time to explore each species, it's like, you, you gotta know how it's going to work. Yeah. And I think that's what makes a beautiful display. Absolutely. And it, it's a beautiful display more than just, you know, aesthetic beauty. It's a beautiful display because the fish are happy and doing what they should be doing in nature you know that's what's really that's what exactly. i love about my tanks when i when when you sit back and you're like ah there it is you know this little checkerboard cichlid's moving leaves around with his mouth and he's digging a little pit under the driftwood okay but he's doing exactly what he should be doing right now it's that right kind of the feeling of success like i did it yeah well that makes me want to ask the question then you know so for the listeners and then maybe we can pull this out and and, and kind of um explain it deeper in uh you know in the social environment but what are the top three fish right now personality wise that work within these functional and aesthetically pleasing structures that just aren't being utilized correctly Great like what, what are the what are the three that you'd be like this sure. is the locale this is how they're used and this is what we should be mm, doing. That's a really good question. Um, yeah, I think one of the obvious ones, I think, as you mentioned, is the pencil fish, especially Equis pencil fish. They are literally, yep, yeah. if you don't have driftwood coming Smart. down into the water, 
and like manzanita drift or something branchy like that you'll never get to see them do what they should do which is just to hover in among the branches kind of motionless face up tail down and yep. it's so cool to see that now I, that one of the rio negro biotopes i did for amazonas magazine it was just like a 12 gallon tank but there's you know there was this group of them and all they ever did was sit in the top right corner by the driftwood that came down and um that's a fish that has a ton of personality they're super nice i don't think people appreciate them as much as they should but um yeah that one that's my favorite i think they're smart well. too they i think they're really a smart they're fish most tetris for they're sure and they're really curious which I, you know yes yeah they have a kind of interesting little personality um more so than most standard tetras agree yeah um another one that i've been really liking lately is um the dwarf pike cichlid uh Finis- yeah Finis- oh, cichlid. Mm, awesome there's, there's some debate whether it's regani or whether it's its own species when it comes from the orinoco but I've been getting these in from Colombia, and uh, you know they're like two inch, uh, two and a half inch as adults. They're sexually dimorphic. The females have these bright red spots on the dorsal and display like crazy, and um, that's such a cool one because they have they're social. And if you have a big enough tank, you're not going to do well in like a ten or twenty. But if you have a large enough tank with lots of structure and leaf leaf litter, driftwood, etc., they're just so interesting to watch them form hierarchies and they'll manipulate the landscape they'll dig they'll move leaves around that sort of thing so yeah that's a really cool one i really like those guys lately and they're not mean (laughs) i mean they yeah i was about to ask you are they're not they're not aggressive they're not going to bother they're so small they're not going to bother other fish and they're they're territorial amongst themselves but not horribly so it's it's really easy to maintain a group in like a you know if you have a a 30 gallon or up tank it's easy enough to maintain a group of five that's a fish we need to see more of you know yeah scott i'll send you remind me i'll I'll send you the pictures i took of some of mine i have some spectacular photos of them displaying in one of my leaf litter tanks um nice they're super cool super pretty fish how many fish do you keep in a in a group like in a in a like tank of that Uh, size like how many would you good because it diffuses the aggression um if you have if you have like a male and two females, you might be able to get by with that. But um, I, I think five is kind of minimum for them because they just, they can be kind of nasty in smaller groups, but five keeps them all on their toes and they're just, yeah, mm-hmm. that's what I'd go for five or more. So paint, paint the picture for the, uh, the third and final fish. What, uh, what, what should we be looking at and, and kind of what is that environment in the home oh, and aquarium? Goodness, that's a tricky one. Um, <laughs> that's, that's a tougher one. Um, I'm going to say, not one particular species, but one that a group of species that is underappreciated and probably underutilized in aquariums, really misunderstood. But I'd say knife fish. Um, yes, <laughs> ah. yeah, we were we just were. talking about that. And I think yeah. that people have they learn about knife fish knowing the common black ghost knife. They think that that applies to the entire group of you know the whole family, and they're all so very different, and a lot of them are complete leaf litter dwellers so and and social so i mean there's so many different interesting knife fish out there that you could that would be so well adapted to a biotope setting and they're not all huge right i mean we were talking about the dwarf species which it looks just like the sierra or centipede knife but it's small it stays what like three inches or so super Mm. cool and and you said you actually get those in exactly exactly i i I do have a, you know, because I, I like them, um, I do tend to bring in a few oddball knives when I can, and um, they, they actually do pretty well. Uh, those, I feel like there's a, gr- a small but growing group of people who are real knife fish enthusiasts and, you know, yeah. tr- want to give them the proper care and stuff. And uh, I'm always excited when 
um, like Aqua Imports who sells online retail, I fulfill a lot of their stuff. Mm -hmm. But when they forward a question to me from one of their customers, it's real a deep dive about they want to know where this came from, what's its habitat nice. like, how do they behave in the wild. When I get those kind of emails forwarded to me, I'm like, ooh, all right, let's dig in here. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's good for a few reasons. It's good because, obviously, it, it shows that somebody's interested beyond just exactly. the pretty fish. But it also shows they're interested in the habitats where the fishes are coming from, which I think, as, and you and I and Johnny all agree, that that's, that's the key, sure. really, with a lot of these fish. Now, are they particularly shy when you keep like if they were in a dedicated species aquarium oh, sure. They're, um, um, especially what, those, what would your tank be like um the sierra knife fish and that the dwarf sierra whatever uh, was it hypopygus i think hypopygus okay, yep. so yeah those two are not shy and they're actually really social they have they form hierarchies and groups um you tend to find them in the wild really dense together so um yeah oh. so they're not something you find like one in a square meter and then one like you know 20 feet 20 yards away they're they're usually found oh. in groups in leaf litter and they're fairly social so that's um if you give them a species tank i found that you know they'll squabble a little bit but as long as there's enough hides and leaf litter and branches and dim lighting they do quite well together are they primarily nocturnal like the traditional yes and no. view um, we have a night they don't like bright lights but um they certainly mm -hmm. come out to feed they you know they learn pretty quickly when there's food in the water and sometimes they'll just kind of ruffle around like the dominant fish will kind of get up swim around and poke at the other ones then they get up and explore a little bit maybe re uh re-landscape the leaf litter and then get back down into it so they're not it's not like you never see them during the day like some fish Right, right. Now, let's move over across the pond a little sure. bit. What do you, Asian fish. Now, Asian fish have always been sort of the, you know, it's weird. It's kind of like the little, I don't know, maybe Johnny disagrees with me, but it seems like they've been sort of the stepchild sure. to the South American I, stuff, I right? I completely disagree yeah, with so you. Yeah, Johnny will disagree. Uh, I knew it. Go for it. <laughs> so, yeah, in my opinion, all fish, all aquariums, and anything cool starts in Malaysia, Borneo. <laughs> That that's where everything cool starts from, and then you're just gonna go out there and just say that's kind of secondary. Yeah, you're like yeah, it's the Amazon. It's you know it's a nice cool little tiny river. You know it's got its own thing. Uh, no, well, Mike, what do you what do you think is the coolest? If let's do let's play the same game. What are your top two or three Asian fish that are maybe underrepresented that you think mm -hmm. would be really cool? Oh, um, you know one that's really surprised me, and maybe it surprised me because it's not underrepresented. But um, so recently I've been selling a lot of the uh lizard red lizard loach from thailand um a lot no. and yeah. people have been going nuts for those and so that one's really surprised me because i always thought it was a cool fish but i i, I thought it was so niche that it really didn't have much appeal but those have been one of my best sellers in the last couple of months i'm struggling to get more of them really? to be honest um yeah, and that's such a cool fit. I, the loaches have really taken off in popularity. I'm starting to see a lot more. Like, I, um, at one point in the last month or two before all the travel restrictions started coming through, I think I had seven species of Hillstream loach and three or four other similar, similar ones. I had gastromyzons, pseudogastromyzons, duelias. I had a bunch in oh, stock, wow. and they were the whole moving, thing. And they were moving. People were buying them. So, um, people are starting to get really into that and especially you know i take the time to identify them properly which a lot of wholesalers mm -hmm. don't because they come in a mixed batch so that's mm. well it's just you know it's the nature of the be the beast but because i'm real picky and kind of anal about that stuff i like to that's i like to mix, yeah i just uh, so um you know i got this really cool shipment of um 
the spotted Borneo hill stream loach, which I believe is Gastromyzon tenocephala. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's like a handful of other things mixed in, which I sorted out. But that whole batch, I think, sold very quickly. And again, those loaches, they require some extra care when they come in. They're not typical fish. They like cooler temps. So you need to get them on Rapashi because they're always hungry when they come in. But with the little mm-hmm. TLC, those guys are such amazing fish. And, um, yeah, I mean, the habitats they come from are spectacular. Those lend themselves so well to a biotope. What do you think about fishes like um, uh, like the little perch, you know, the dwarf perch, those kind of fishes that come from Asia? A lot of the, the you know, the those types like of fish. Baddis or Darius? Baddis okay. and yeah, Nanda, sure. yeah. Um, those are really neat. Um, definitely a little more sensitive when they first come in. So they're not something, some holes are don't even deal with them. Um, and you know, there is a, there's a lot of really neat baddest species and Dario species that are super cool, but really niche and gray when they come in. So, you know, unless you have a male in breeding condition, they're not a lot of color. I think they're right. You know, there's, they're definitely a specialist fish, but I think they're really cool. Um, I, I remember having baddest asimensis come in from India when I was at seagrass and I thought they were awesome. I kept some on my desk, right. but I don't think we sold any. Big gray fish. <laughs> <laughs> um, the black tiger baddest from Myanmar that's been coming in lately is a really neat one. Um, they're, you know, again, kind of a specialist fish, a little sensitive, uh, definitely not for community tank with a lot of those because they just, mm-hmm. they get outcompeted for food, like a seahorse or something, you know, in, in a mixed species tank. So you got to, really focus on them for the tanks but i think they're super cool do you, now of course johnny's gonna probably ask about resbora oh yeah he loves lots of <laughs> little resbora what, what is the what is a hot okay what yeah keep going um, what's a cool little well, i mean the hot resbora right now that like i can't possibly get enough of is bridgette the chili resbora um mm-hmm. i could i could sell those all day long like they're really popular right now and deservedly they're just stunning fish um yeah but yeah, the axle rods are really neat. Um, I, you know, they're very seasonal and uh, a little delicate. They definitely take some TLC when they come in, but like I keep those at such a dark tint in the tank and they really glow. Um, so like the blues mm-hmm. and the reds, I haven't had, I haven't had greens in a while, but blues and reds I've had recently and they, they just look spectacular in a tinted tank. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Did they come from dramatically different geographical locales? No, no, Is that all, why you tend to get one no, of them? They're close together, but, um, isolated i think and really the collecting on those has to do with rainy season dry season dynamics so uh, yeah so Ah. it's limited you know like uh the water level in some of the swamps where they catch those can vary like eight feet in a week so it depends on where the collectors are in time um yeah so yeah that's they're sporadic but awesome when i get them i always love looking at those and that's one of those fish that you know I, i keep have um I have like a 40 breeder full of uh, katapa leaves that I just for in-house use for all the new stuff that, that as they come in and I use, <laughs> well, just yeah, throw them I, in I there. use them heavily. I make tan and tea with those almost every shipment night and all the stuff that's black water that comes in gets a lot of tannic acid in their tank. And it, mm-hmm. I, well, I think Does it's it... really almost a necessity with some of these fish for as they come in because it, it gives them something close to what they're used to instead of keeping them in crystal clear, sterile water with, you know, a lot of oxygenation and um, a lot of bacteria most likely growing in the tank. Uh, the tannins really right. help them settle in. And it, I mean, for me, it's a dramatic decrease in mortality that you don't see the fish crashing after two, three days in the tank. Yeah. Oh, really? So it's a, it's it a helps. huge thing. That's, 
What what about um like the gobies, like mm. the rhino gobias and, and, and those kind of do you see a lot of those and what are those I still see them kind available. Of really it's, touchy it's or not niche? a fish that I tend to gravitate towards. Um as cool as they are. And I kept rhino gobias from China like when I was like fourteen, you know, I had them next to my bed in a little ten gallon tank. And they were so much fun to watch them on a little sand bed tank, um, watch the males display and stuff. They're really cool fish. But I do think they are so niche. And um, for me, as an importer, yeah, the one of the hesitancies is I have to buy like 200 of them minimum. Um, yeah, so that oh. makes it tough. I look at a lot of them on lists and I'm like, oh, that's such a neat fish that I sell five of. And, <laughs> you know, and have 195 right. that just kind of stare at me. You know, I've, I've got a question about, um, you know, the, the, you were just talking about sure. fish just crashing out um, after they're introduced. And so I, I hate to be the guy that's like, I've experienced this or I've killed a, a, an entire batch oh, of yeah. fish. We've all done it. Um, and, and I've had, who hasn't? I, well, you know, <laughs> but I, I noticed this more so um, with the Southeast Asian fish. Uh, I mean, specifically like the, the Brevibora. Sure. Um, you know, or any, any of those, you know, tiny, like the eye spot sort of raspora, you, you'll put, you put 15 of them in the tank, uh, everything seemingly is going well and uh, 12 die just all at one yep. time. And you're like, well, why? You know, and it's, it's one of those things where you're like, I, I don't understand um, because everything else is doing fine. Um, do you have a tip? for the listeners um to one explain to them hey sometimes it's not you if it's not um but another one is like hey you know this is this is the way to do it um and i think that's an area that's oftentimes just not talked about is like where these fish are actually coming from or like what the water really needs to be like um yeah that's i mean as a hobbyist i've killed plenty of fish as an importer i've killed plenty of fish (laughs) It's definitely something, but I mean, I, I spend a ton of time with a microscope. Um, I've been working on, on fish health for a long time. I did my master's at University of Florida, and it was fisheries and aquatic science, but had a heavy, heavy dose of fish health management courses and um, some veterinary-style fish health courses. So I spent a lot of time not only just seeing when fish crash, but figuring out why. And that's something um, a lot of times bacterial uh with southeast asian fish especially these fish are from you know borneo peat streams and 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 swamps where the ph might be four and there's just so little free swimming free living bacteria in that kind of environment that Mm -hmm. when those fish get exposed to crowded conditions in a wholesaler importer exporter tank and a lot of times what i was uh, seeing is that the fish would come in very clean the first two three days and then um and they develop bacterial infections from like aeromonas, pseudomonas, the stuff that's on our hands and in the air at all times, they would opportunistically colonize these fish and just blow up. And the fish have no immune system ability to deal with them. And they just crash from bacterial infection. That's when 90% of the time when you see those mystery, just like 12 out of 15 fish crash within one day. It's just, that's what it yeah. is. If you look at it under scope, you're going to see like hemorrhaging under the skin, black necrotic masses and scale tissue, that sort of stuff. So, um, so what I usually, I kind of developed a little protocol for those particularly sensitive fish. But one of the key things that really for a hobbyist perspective is they don't necessarily have control over that. But what they can do is don't buy the fish right when they get to their fish store. 
give them 10 days. Sure. These fish don't like new environments and transport and stuff. So the less they move or the slower they move, the better. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of wholesalers, unfortunately, still kind of operate on the like, get them in, get them out before they crash mentality. Yeah. And that's unfortunate because the local fish stores end up dealing with the burden of having these fish crash on them. Um, sure. But yeah, I, I definitely recommend letting them stay put for a bit. Tannic acid and, and having a, a tinted tank, even if it's just a quarantine for them before they go into your display, that really helps avoid some of these issues because the antifungal and antibacterial properties of uh, Indian almond leaves and, and catapa bark and stuff, it, it's, it helps. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I see thousands of fish come in week to week and I notice the difference immediately. And like when I get fish into a tank with that stuff in it ready to go versus when I was first bringing stuff in, and I was just putting them into clean, soft water. So that that's definitely right. useful. What about probiotics? Is mm, there any advantage or disadvantage to that? Have you yes, experimented have, with that? Actually, that's, um, that's one of the things that really was a, I wouldn't say a game changer, but it really helped a lot with my incoming fish. Um, probiotics are tricky because uh, in the water, they don't do too much. They really need to be ingested through the gut. And, you know, there's varying degrees of how effective probiotics are at being absorbed by the gut whether they're actually getting absorbed or just getting pooped right back out so um but what mm-hmm. i have been using is um some sera foods that are um they have oligosaccharides which are an important prebiotic and a probiotic component and they also have beta glucans which is an immune stimulant that's used in like salmon aquaculture mm-hmm. um it's uh, there's a ton of research on it in the food aquaculture field not really any in the ornamental field but you know it, it makes a huge difference in their immune capabilities. So I've been feeding that like right from the get go. Um, and I, I really am happy with the results of that stuff. All the fish love it right away. Like wild fish will eat these granules immediately out of the bag, which is cool. Yeah. Oh, but that's good to know. Much my go-to feed is the Sarah um, natural uh, breeder plus formula or something like that. I, I just get buckets of it. It's, it's pricey, Ooh. but man, having a good, yeah, having a Worth really it. good quality feed that can give these fish, because you got to figure when they're coming to you, even if they've been at an LFS for a while, um, they're still in kind of immune shock. They've lost most of the normal gut flora that they would have. It, that helps. I mean, and mm-hmm. we know that with humans, even gut flora is very closely linked to immune response. Uh, certainly the case in fish. But um, not only that, but it helps them absorb nutrients better. So these fish are hungry. They need a little bit of TLC and support. And I think probiotics, it goes a long way to help with that. That's, that's a, that's really important. And it's something I, I think we don't think about when we, you know, I mean, not enough hobbyists. <laughs> I mean, we can go on for this for hours, but not enough hobbyists exactly. quarantine fish to begin yep. with or acclimate. So this would be a great time to start a protocol in your own system like that. I know the experienced hobbyists generally do it, but a lot of people, I can't help but think would be sure. more successful if they embrace some kind of a quarantine I mean, protocol. And, and you know? how cheap like all the systems are at small scale ones and how available yep. and, and good they are. It's so easy to have a quarantine tank just ready to go. Um, that's strong. Exactly. Sorry, go ahead. So I've got another mm-hmm. question for you there. Um, if we were to list out some of the most important things for, say, uh, the, the, the pseudo-advanced hobbyist, the, the guy that's, that's getting into, you know, and dabbling with maybe a botanical style or blackwater sure. aquarium for the first time, if you were to say, like, microbiome and gut flora for fish, um, environments, uh, you know, tannic acid, humic substances, those sort of things. Like 
what are the top three things that are going to give uh, the hobbyist the best chance for success and then also the sure. most enjoyment um, from their aquarium? Well, number one, I would say water quality. And I see that as ob- that's a really obvious one that any hobbyist should think of. But what I find um, a lot of the times, I think that it, the pseudo advanced or advanced hobbyist, like you said, I feel like to fixate on exact conditions that the fish would find in the wild, like pH, GH, etc. And to be honest, that doesn't really right. matter. Um, you know, and a lot, you got to figure that a lot of these fish, yeah, sure. They came from 4.0. Then they went to a, um, a consolidator's facility and he's got 7.8 well water. Then they went to an exporter in Jakarta who's got 8.2 well water and, you know, massive hardness. Then they're coming to a wholesaler in the U.S. So these fish have already run the gamut of water condition changes. Bringing them back to their natural state isn't really necessary at first, and nor is it really advantageous in a lot of cases. What you really got to pay attention to is, like, actual quality of the water. Make sure your nitrates are very low. Make sure you're not spiking the tank with ammonia because there's uh, a lot of decaying organic matter or... um, bacteria overwhelming amounts of bacteria in the tanks you want really well settled tanks because most of these blackwater fishes are incredibly sensitive to environmental bacteria so big water changes are really helpful so when i say water quality that's kind of more what i mean um and and one thing i've actually Mm -hmm. started using that's been really helpful that could be useful for quarantine tanks too for um for hobbyists at home is these drop-in uv sterilizers that are just like nine watts and a power head i use those for a lot of fish that are really Mm -hmm. bacterially sensitive um and that has had a nice impact. So I, I've been using those with wild angels, wild discus, uh, and the, some of the wild tetras that are really ah. delicate, like the ruby tetras or green neons. And, you know, I only use it for about mm-hmm. a week when they first get here, but those have been a really useful little tool because it keeps the overall count of bacteria in the water. As long as you have it dialed in, the bulb is working and functional. You got to replace the bulbs every six months or so. But if you have it set up correctly, that can really help um, prevent some of those bacterial infections that are so common in those blackwater fish. That's interesting. And, and, you know, what I think is kind of funny is that, you know, in, in our methodology that we love here is a lot of decomposing material, um, a lot of organics. Now I know personally, having done this for many, many years, I have not noticed degrading water quality, increasing nitrate or phosphate. We, even though I have a ton of leaf litter and seed pods and twigs and stuff decomposing on the bottom with biofilms, I, I've had a theory that it almost forms a yep. sort of a biological filter, so to speak. And so there seems to always be this misnomer with that was a big problem with black water. And a lot of people had the perception exactly. that brown water equals dirty equals. And it's it's just not. And if you read the studies or, or just listen to you about oh, what these natural clean. habitats are like, almost you see that they're extremely clean and and. and yeah, it's and in fact, that's they're almost devoid of a lot of life. And that's what's so interesting. Um, and that's why they're de- dependent upon that alectonous input from the outside, from the forest trees and from all these other, you know, insects falling into the water. That's what I find so fascinating. But one of the things I've experimented with, and I don't know if, if you've ever done something like this, but I've played, I, have, I really like two oh, sure. tetras. That's one of my favorite fish. And I set up a tank with them where it was basically a bed of botanical material, twigs and leaves and so forth. And they're, they're accruing, you know, sure. biofilm and, and such. I have not <laughs> fed that tank in probably something like four months. I did it as an experiment. These fish are as fat and happy as sure. any fish I've ever seen. They're yep. feeding off something. You know, there's something there. And I find that fascinating. And I don't know 
if you've oh, played yeah. around with that idea or you... and i've had tanks with similar fish like uh in the past with like ammo cryptic little darter tetras weitzman eye tetras etc where i forget to feed them and the fish are growing you know it's as long as there's a, a really dense amount of botanicals in the tank it tends to create a certain amount of life that obviously keeps them going you know it creates its own little food chain in there just like in a reef tank yeah, yeah exactly that's kind of what i'm what sure. my, my thinking was there um the the other thing i was going to ask you now we we're talking about um the different types of fishes that you've been playing with what about different um habitats that you'd want to model yeah. is there is there a particular habitat by sure. itself well, whatever actually, that you'd be as I, completely as I mentioned, interested you know spending time at home a lot more um I got a cup, I've got a 44 gallon rimless cube that I'm setting up right now. That's going to be an Asian. I'm not sure if it'll be an exact biotope. It'll probably be biotope theme, but um, that is going to be fun. It'll, it'll be black water. I've got a massive piece of driftwood coming about, you know, halfway out of the tank. And um, I got some really fun stuff from you actually just open up the box. I've got those, those Lotus seed pods oh, cool. are amazing. I'm really excited to play with. They're so cool. Yeah, they're cool. I'm so excited to play with those in there. Um, so yeah, that'll be an interesting one. I'm not 100% sure what I want to do. I think I'm going to do uh, Burmese clouded archers because I love them. And yeah, and oh, at least wow. until they get too big. And then um, there's this really cool tire track eel, um, Albugatatus, the starlight eel that comes out of Myanmar as well. That's like absolutely stunning oh. that um, I'm, I'm probably going to keep one of those and who knows what else? It's a fun tank. Um, it's got a radion, a double freshwater radion on it. So I'm going to do plants. Yeah. Nice. Nice. You know, that, that actually, you know, you're speaking about some of those habitats in Asia. What do you Ooh. think about brackish? Yeah. Do you think you're going to see more influx of brackish yeah, you know, fishes? Um, what's, actually, what's... you know, I didn't have brackish tanks set up at the warehouse for a while. Um, I did recently set up a few. And, yeah, there seems to be a definitely interest. Um, mud skippers continue to be popular. And, um, you know, I sold a ton of recently was red scats. They've been really popular and that's a big, Oh wow. It's a big, they're just fish. a big yeah, fish um, though. Right. Cool. And they're, they're gorgeous. Um, but yeah, that's a big fish. That's something for a 200 gallon plus ideally. So yeah, but there's a lot of interesting brackish water fish. Um, night gobies are a popular one. Um, and mm-hmm. I'm trying to think what else, you know, every now and then you see something interesting from Indonesia or Sri Lanka on the brackish list that I'm like, Ooh, that's kind of cool. <laughs> well, there's some, there's some like oh, sure. Malaysian sure. half beaks and some of those kind of I fishes. Do, do, you, yeah. do you ever see those? Um, or they, I've they, brought in a they, couple they, species of half beaks here and there. I don't like to bring in a lot because they're very sensitive. They need, and they're, they tend to be really tiny, but the wrestling half beak is really neat. Um, and Thailand, they tank raise the white ones too. Those the white and silver half beaks, the common ones. And, um, those do well in brackish conditions. They don't need it, but they, they'll do fine in them. So yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff out there. They're not really widespread in the hobby, but I do feel like there's more interest in brackish all of a sudden than there was, you know, 10 years ago. Hmm. I'd, li- I'd like I, to I, think I that maybe we've had a tiny bit of when interest you, in that. I well, like to think that. Showing I don't know. Different ways of doing brackish tanks, like the mangrove root system that you have. And like, just, I, I think that people yeah. have this perception of brackish being like, you know, green spot puffers and green stats and, Yep. Right. And white exactly. sand and, very, and very, rocks like, and boring. Like a, a light salt, like a boring saltwater setup, you know, and it, it's so not that. <laughs> right. It's such a exactly. dynamic habitat, too. That's what's so cool. I spent a lot of time um, in estuaries and like I, I spent a bunch of time in the Sunderbonds, which is the largest mangrove forest in the world on the India-Bangladesh border. 
And that was oh, one wow. of the coolest, most full of life, mm-hmm. interesting dynamic habitats I've ever seen. Yeah, it's it mm-hmm. really is an amazing habitat. And I think, it, again, it's, it's so yeah. misunderstood in the hobby that, that exactly. it's, like, it's like starting all over when you when you appro- you approach it a little differently. I mean, I'm yep. fascinated <laughs> by things like mud and decomposing mangrove leads. And, I mean, there's so much life in I that love particular, <laughs> you know, biome. Um, yeah, exactly. And I think that's something we need to use more of. And sure. I know Johnny feels the same way about that stuff, right? Yeah, are you with us still, Johnny? You got disconnected for a sec. It says you're here. Oh, sure. well, I'm going to take it up and hopefully yeah, Johnny will be able to get off his uh, mute there. Can, but, can you all um, hear me? Yeah, what? No, okay, so is... oh, I'm sorry about oh, I that. You, I, I, uh, I kept getting kicked. Um, uh, you know, uh, I was, I was going to ask. I've got three questions there, and I, I got kicked there for a few couple of minutes. Uh, sure. did, did we finish the thought on uh, the, the three, uh, three prime things? I know we talked about nope. – uh, the, um, about one, I think. Okay, so we'll we'll, we'll come <laughs> we back to it. Then I had one more sure. thought uh, <laughs> that I wanted um, some some clarity on. Um, you know, you were talking about UV sterilizers, and I'm sorry to the users here, or the, the the listeners um, jumping around like that. Uh, the UV sterilizer. What, how do you feel about ozonizers? Um, you know, I use ozone sporadically in my recirculating system. Um, because it's really great at just cl- like cleaning out everything in the water. You know, it takes out free radicals, it takes out, uh, it just clears everything up. Um, I use it once in a while. And, but I, I just, it's really hard to use ozone as a hobbyist safely um, mm. because of, you know, by nature, it's most of us are in our homes and closed <laughs> air spaces. Um, dosing is really tricky. Uh, yeah. I, I, I wouldn't recommend it for most for really advanced hobbies. Like if you wanted to have a, a very large system, ozone's pretty awesome at like keeping your water free of everything um, and just blasting out any nasty bacteria or pathogens that might be kicking around in it. But yeah, it's it, it, it's application on a small scale is really difficult. I think, I mean, I could be wrong. I, I haven't, I've only used big scale ozonizers. I haven't really played around with it myself. No, I think I think I think I align with you pretty pretty sure. well there, and that's sage advice. I just wanted to bring it up because I know I know some people will they'll go ah oh, UV sterilizer. Well, what about ozone? And you know, yeah, so, like, uh, ozone. I mean, UV, yeah, they always seem well, to go UV hand in hand you know, in a lot of people's can minds. Run it forever and not really worry about it. Um, if it breaks, you don't worry about it. Like ozone ozonizer, you can fry your whole. Uh, yep. You know, if one yep. if, if the dosage is off or it doesn't aerate out, you know. Yes, exactly. Yeah, burned yes, a few fins here. in my time with those. <laughs> and uh, and then and then segueing yeah. back into the uh, you know the other two topics or not the other two topics but the other two points that you're going to sure. make about you know the, the the prime three there. But I had one more question because you guys kind of went off into a tangent there. And B- Borneo, the Borneo it happens, happy. man. Okay, so this is like the the elusive fish that I've never seen ever in real life, and I would love to get my hands on. Um, <clears throat> which you one know, is? but uh, <laughs> gotcha. Um, that's uh, a hint to you, man. <laughs> whatever, I have no idea even what it's. Is it what it's actually. Hang on, I gotta look this up. <laughs> it's like right. It's a little brown fish, right, John? <laughs> Come on, shouldn't you be able to identify based on that? Come on, right? Well, I'm used to the um, the Tenga. Tenga is a species. Hemiramphodon tenga. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I see those pop up every now and then. I don't think I've ever brought them in, but actually, I used to do. Uh, 
I used to spend uh, a lot, like three to four weeks a year in Indonesia at my at a client's place doing fish health consulting for them, and okay. they had these fairly regularly, so I know I could get them from them if I wanted. Um, yeah, they're really neat. Um, definitely super soft water. Same same kind of protocol for them, I'd say, is like for axle rod reservoir, where you know keep bacterial Perfect. count really low, um, let them settle for a while. Actually, you know what, Johnny? I'll, I'll, when when things settle down because right now i can't get anything from indonesia but um next time that i can i'll bring some in and just sit on them for a while wonderful i mean i've got a uh you know a 90 centimeter long 12 inch tall like sure. yeah the 12 inch deep oh, three foot long fun. tank ready ready for them sure uh, whenever that happens cool yeah i think uh, um if i recall an older Amazonas issue, maybe one of the early, early issues of Amazonas magazine before I even started writing for them. They had a cool write up about the habitat of these guys in Borneo. And um, they just, they had some nice habitat shots from Hans Evers. And it, um, if I get a chance, I'll, I'll look that up and send you the link to it if I can. Cause that, that was really cool. I remember reading about these and just having a different perspective about the habitat they live in. It's, it's really similar to the Igarape habitat in South America in a lot of ways. Okay. Cool. Mm-hmm. Very, very interested in that. And so uh, these, these other two points, you touched on it and you said, um, actually, you even touched on it. You, I think you really clarified uh, water uh, quality and not just talking about the, uh, the obvious things. Right. Uh, what are the other two really important ones for the hobbyists to not only enjoy, but um, get the best result? Sure. Um, nutrition's a big one. And that's one I spent a lot of time with. Uh, we, we talked about it already, but yeah, feeding of I feel like, you know, it's really weird, but a lot of advanced, very hobbyists that do amazing things and breed amazing stuff and have been keeping fish for so long. I feel like they just feed, a lot of times they're just feeding their fish whatever. And, um, you know, it surprises me because um, yeah. I guess, you know, a lot of those guys don't deal with wild caught fish or recent imports. But if you're dealing with a fish that's fairly starved because they've had to be purged for shipping and is strapped compromise you know that's a fish that needs good nutrition fast so i mean i i kind of obsess over that in terms of like when i get fish shipments in sometimes i'm there till 4 a.m putting them away and once they're away i'm gonna spend another two hours making sure they have access to good food because like that's it's so important that they get that now instead of you know the next day so um same with a lot of fish that you that might be considered more delicate or don't do well like the baddest and um you know, certain Borfrasboras, Barara, stuff like that. A lot of times I feel like they're just not getting fed what they need. So, I mean, giving them a food that like, look at the ingredient list, um, look for good quality proteins, whole proteins, look for stuff like beta glucans, which is an immunostimulant. That's an awesome additive for foods. Um, probi- is that something you can get? You, you can yeah. get uh, yeah. actually, from like actually, a, like, they, I don't know. They make it for humans. Some... So like you get it from um, like a vitamin shop or eBay or supplement store or something as a powder. It's actually derived from fungi. Um, mm-hmm. No, brewer's yeast. I forget. It's one of the two. It's either mushrooms or brewer's yeast, but it's, um, huh. it's a super useful immune stimulant that I've, but a lot of good foods now have it in there. So I've been using feeds that already have it. Um, and okay. then like oligosaccharides are another really important one. Cause that, that's a prebiotic. That's what fish help. It, it helps fish break down food and actually absorb nutrients and helps rebuild their gut flora. So that's been a good one. But just looking at an all around quality food, I know that's it's fairly advanced stuff because most people don't know how to look at an ingredient label with all those complicated words and know what what's what. But um, 
dig into it, you know, <laughs> learn about it. Uh, learn right. what those fish eat in the wild. Are they fruit eaters? Because, you know, a lot of fish in the Amazon are. Are they eating, you know, are they eating, are they a, a yep. grazer but eat a lot of protein? You know, that that's something I think is just really important to get them not only good quality foods but the right foods. I think that's a, that's a huge one. Scott and I often talk about this and, you know, is should we be feeding fruit or should we be feeding, um, you know, insects and yeah. the, the beta glucans is an interesting one because, you know, uh, side, side note here, um, in, in slight tangent, we've, um, at least in my household, uh, my wife's really fastidious and, and super interested about, you know, uh, eating healthy and better foods. And, um, we've gotten onto this chaga mushroom kick, which I believe is really high in beta glucans. Yep. So it was mushrooms. That's right. And yeah. And it's, it's really good. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, again, purely anecdotal, but, um, well, a noticeable a effect for me. Yeah. I mean, on, on my own experience, it's like, I, I'm not a health practitioner. So take, take my advice sure. with a grain of salt, but the, the stuff is amazing. I could only imagine what it's doing for the fish. And so like what, you know, again, I know this is tangential, but, um, you know, what role do some of these other things play in and, you know, they seemingly are important for, for fish health, but, uh, you know, why are we just not seeing this stuff in the foods? I mean, why is it not talked about more often? Um, I mean, to be honest, I think what I just said kind of answers the question, whereas a lot of the advanced hobbyists who are willing to spend a lot of money on high end equipment or expensive fish, they're still feeding, you know, uh, some sort of low grade flake a lot of times because it's just not something that we think of with fish is nutrition. Um, I think the marine hobby has really gone loops and, Hmm. you know, years and years beyond freshwater in that in that sense where like, you know, the, the yeah. focus and emphasis on nutrition in the marine hobby is really quite amazing right now. And we need to, we should be looking Absolutely. at that when we're dealing with freshwater because it, it makes such a difference. Um, but yeah, like that's why I don't think, I mean, to be fair, there are some absolutely amazing quality freshwater fish foods on the market right now. And I'm really glad that a couple of major manufacturers took the time and effort to produce those and get them to us. But it's, you know, it's tough. They need to be able to make sure that enough people buy that food to make it worth the high cost of production. But, um, yeah, I, I think that still the freshwater hobby kind of people tend to just be stuck in their ways with food. They haven't advanced. It's just, oh yeah, this is good enough. Keeps their belly full and they eat it. So I'll feed it. Hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, it's kind of nice to see some of the foods like, like, you know, the, the, bug bites and things like that, that are actually yep. derived from the natural food source. I mean, that's really, to me, that's oh, been a big breakthrough. And, and the, the Rapashi stuff, the Igapo Explorer, exactly. I mean, he really put some thought into that food. Yeah. And I mean, and I think that's amazing to see that. I spend a lot of money on food and um, I, you know, I spend a lot of time with it too. I, I see, try and watch what fish eat right out of the bag to see what their feeding response is. I try and see if it keeps weight on them and, you know, that I, like I said, I'm a little obsessive about certain things. Feeding and nutrition is absolutely one of them. So uh, mm-hmm. it's really, we're in a golden age of fish nutrition right now. I hope that the freshwater hobby kind of joins in and embracing that because if not, then, you know, these foods might go away, but um, it's right now you can find a really naturally appropriate food for almost any kind of fish. Well, so in our holistic yeah. approach, then That's we've true. covered, uh, you know, the true uh, water quality, um, not not just talking about pure chemistry and numbers, right. but uh, a myriad of different things that are that are in there. We've talked about the gut flora or gut 
um, health and microbiome of fish and overall fish nutrition. So then what, what is the, uh, the third leg to this, uh, this tripod? Uh, so that was, I mean, that's a really easy one is basic. And, and from an import perspective, this is an important one. A lot of hobbyists don't think through this that way because it's just a different approach, but reducing physiological stress on the fish is really important. Mm. Um, and a lot of us don't think that way necessarily, because we think if we're putting them in our display tank, that's really nice and habitat appropriate, they're going to be happy immediately. And that's not necessarily always the case. So, um, you know, things like bright lighting, uh, high current, uh, any, you know, a filter outflow that's a little higher than it should be, something, things like that, or, or tank meets that are already established. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, it's like a stressor tend to for the not fish, think right? through yeah. all those things. And that's where another, in another case where a small quarantine tank might be super useful because you can keep dim lighting, you can keep, you can just let them settle in by themselves without any other confounding factors or any other uh, variables. And I think that that's real important with some of the more delicate species out there. Now, I have another question, something that I've I've talked about and thought about, and John and I have talked about this ad nauseum. Sure. Seasonal changes in the environment, both, I mean, everything from yep. lighting to water chemistry to water level to food sources change throughout the year in a lot of these environments. Have you noticed any, have sure. you ever played around with that type of thing with your fishes changing things throughout the year? And what have you noticed in terms of um, benefits, yeah, health, spawning, that, vigor, I mean, or whatever? It blows me away having been, having been able to go to the Amazon basin several years in a row at around the same time or different times to the same places and seeing how absolutely drastically everything has changed depending on how much rain they got that year. Um, that's That was something that really shocked me. And... Mm -hmm. um, uh, one of the talks I do is about freshwater stingrays because just I love them. I don't keep them right now because I don't have the space. But um, freshwater stingrays are probably uh -huh. the more advanced freshwater fish to keep, not just because their size, but they're so demanding in terms of water quality. And one of the kind of yeah. little tangents that I kind of recommend to freshwater stingray keepers is there's this uh, you know accepted wisdom in that hobby is to keep them hot, 84 degrees, clean, consistent water temperature, lots of food. And my experience with freshwater stingers in the wild says that that is completely wrong and possibly detrimental. Um, <laughs> actually, so this leads me to a tangent that's much broader than that in terms of all fish. Um, when I was at Shedd Aquarium uh, a couple of years back, I was talking to one of my colleagues who works, she's a curator of freshwater fishes there. And so I was getting a cool behind the scenes and a little bit of a pick the brain background tour and so they actually have at Shed Aquarium, they have an aquarium microbiome lab where they, yeah, so, hmm. so exactly. Ooh. And, and so Ooh, I'd like to spend time there. The microbiomes <laughs> of their aquariums and looking at what bacteria develop, how they, how, you know, what, what they're feeding uh. on, what they're producing, um, everything. So they're culturing stuff and seeing like what mess of different archaea and bacteria are actually nitrifying. It's super cool. So, I mean, so oh, wow. what what um Erica the whole said game was that they're experimenting with doing seasonal temperature changes, drastic ones in their big Amazon displays because they've found that at consistent warm temperatures, there's much like if you keep the temperature consistent for a year at eighty, you're gonna end up with harmful pathogenic bacteria much more regularly than if you 
drop temperatures down to 76, bring them up to 84, vary them throughout the year. So they're, they're finding a much more optimal mix of microbes when there's changes like that, which is totally mind blowing stuff. (laughs) That's really interesting stuff. Ooh, and you know, we supply, we supply uh, botanicals to the shed too. I, I, that's kind of, so it's kind of neat to know they're playing with those kinds of things. I find that really, really, um, you know, this is just an observation, but, uh, I, I've over the last few years, um, and by few, I mean, probably five to 10 years, just slowly remove heaters from everything. I'm like, uh, you know, if, if it's warm enough in my house, it's probably warm enough for the fish. And, and I've noticed, uh, again, anecdotal, the, the display aquariums I have that sit on glass stands that are open, mm-hmm. uh, these smaller, shallow tanks, they fluctuate more, but I always have the healthiest fish, yep. uh, happiest fish in those environments. And gosh, you know, I just, maybe I never really put those things together there or connected the dots. It was, um, you know, they, nothing has a well, heater and yeah, uh, the, the, the temperature changes. Yeah, like, there's not. I mean, nowhere in nature are you going to find 78 degrees or 80 degrees consistently throughout the year. So thinking that way, you know, there's definitely uh, when I had my um, in my last apartment, I had a, a big group of red uh, discus from Kuipayua, uh, I think one of the Tapajos areas where you find the nice reds. And I did a little experiment because I was I was in that area and there's this that's that's a place where when the rains come in it's close enough to the amazon where the amazon really overflows and pushes into it and so that's an area where water temps tend to be 84 Mm -hmm. where you find discus but at one point of the year called the frio the cold water from the amazon i mean it's literally from the andes snow melt pushes into that habitat and you're finding wild discus at 68 or 70 degrees it's totally nuts and so wow. I had some discus from there and I played with that wow. during the winter. I just let, I turned the heaters off. I kept one on and I think I dropped the tank from like 84 to 76 in, in the course of three days. And then I let it drop a little more. The fish didn't mind at all. Um, they actually ate more. So it was interesting. Yeah. And, and they, um, their colors were a little reduced. Wow. They had the bars a little bit more, but I left them there for like three months, brought the temperatures back up as it got warmer here and no ill effects whatsoever that's interesting i, I sure wonder would that impact the spawning behavior too i mean does does yep. is that cool water like a cue for them to feed more so, maybe that's yeah, what so it is it's like it's like they're the you know gut loading or whatever banks and comes into the top of joe's is bringing with us all kinds of alectonous materials because the amazon's full of sediment full of floating logs you know fruit etc so that's bringing a ton of right. food and food sources for the discus food, basically the insects and crustaceans. So they're they're feasting during that time, and then when it warms up again, sometimes mm-hmm. is when food gets scarce. Interesting. So we may maybe maybe be doing a disservice to fish that. like discus, Absolutely. where it's always kept at eighty four degrees constant, right? Yeah. Now, what about in the in the agapo environments, like with cardinal tetras and so forth? I mean, I know you've told me many times they actually think sure. of that fish as almost a seasonal fish because the, those areas dry up and so forth. But what about well, the temperature fluctuations during the given wet season? Does that happen there too? Uh, spawns and commercial production of cardinals and neon tetras take place. They put them in air-conditioned rooms in pairs. So, um, oh yeah. <laughs> so 
that's how you get really? millions of cardinals if you want to produce <laughs> millions of cardinals is you take a bunch of you you get them all raised up in fat at warm temperatures you get good looking fat females and you take like one female maybe two females and a male put them in a tiny glass aquarium with no aeration and put them in an air-conditioned room at like uh in vietnam i think they do it around 74 degrees um in florida it's even a little lower i think and wow. that's how you get spawns Isn't that amazing? That's something we just we just don't yeah. think of it in that you know we're so caught up in aquarium culture or the aquarium interpretation of how we do things that we sometimes fail to look at why we do things and we don't question it. And then when you look at the wild habitat, it's it's completely different. I mean, that's fascinating to me. Um, and that, that that whole bit about the microbiome of our aquariums too fascinates me. Bacteria and so forth, and uh, fluctuations in that and. It seems like there's a oh, whole yeah. new I mean, area I've, for hobbyists to really play with. This hobby because of that, there's so much out there and so much to dig into. Um, there really, you can go as far as you want with it, but um, you know, I think it's just we're in a good time now too, where there's so much more information available. Um, there's so much more knowledge about fish habitats that was never readily available unless you're really lucky enough to go somewhere. So it's a, you know, it's really, but but if you pay attention, right. you want to develop your hobby and you want to develop in that route and give fish a more natural uh, environment and something that mimics their habitat in the wild. You can do that now better than ever. I agree. I agree. What, um, and, and John, you might, you might have questions on this, but what about fish from Africa? Do you think we're going to see, yeah, are we starting I mean, to see more of that? Is that still sort of an underserved no, no, area of the hobby you think? But, I mean, besides the reflex, cool I mean, getting more and more stuff. Um, and there's there's actually for the first time in a while there's really good exporters in Cameroon and Guinea, so yeah we're starting to see some really interesting stuff come uh-huh. through. Um, like you know obviously there's those cool pelvic acromas which are kind of niche fish, nanochromas from the Congo are awesome. Mm-hmm. They're so cool. And um, there's other stuff too like um gosh, I can't remember the name yeah Lepidarchus I think. Um, so there's Adonis and jellybean tetras. There's these really pretty dwarf tetras from Africa. Um, that I've been getting somewhat regularly and they're a popular seller. Mm-hmm. They're not super cheap because, you know, getting anything exotic out of Cameroon or Guinea is not cheap, but, um, but those have been quite popular sellers and, uh, sure. there's a lot of different fish from that underappreciated fish that are starting to come through. Uh, I had a Nigeria import scheduled, which had to get canceled, unfortunately, because of the current travel restrictions, but um, I'm excited to get back to that when we can. And there's all yeah. kinds of cool stuff on there. Um, I got just before things got shut down, I got in these um, these fish called mudfish or hinge mouth fish. I don't know if you're familiar with those. They're called they're the name's Fractolamus, the, the scientific name, the no. genus. And they are just bizarre. Absolutely. I mean, the weirdest fish I've ever seen. They're air breathers. <laughs> um, they're small. I think they get about four inches max size. Um, they look like a mini biter almost or a mini polypterus, but like a way weirder face. And really? um, they're kind of they live in a, a very mu- like not muddy but shallow puddle kind of similar areas you find wild betas in in Southeast Asia. That's the habitat they in- inhabit in um, uh-huh. in Africa. So there's there's just a ton of cool stuff that oh, I don't weird. think so has it, I... made has been mainstream yet or hasn't been super popular, but um, it's out there and it's it's hopefully once these once things settle down a bit, you know, be more widely available. 
And I think what's cool about that is, that, again, part of probably part of the reason why yep. they weren't popular is because people weren't looking in those Absolutely. habitats. I mean, the collectors probably just taking them for granted. Oh, that's a fish that lives that. in a puddle or whatever. But in nature, you know, they're just, they're actually really widespread. But it's just again, it's a matter of sometimes um, leveraging your connection, saying, "Hey, this lives in the country that you export out of. Can you get these for me?" And you know, and then like. Well, that's it. <laughs> right. Yeah, sometimes it's like the, that crappy fish. We have later, thousands of them. Yeah. Your supplier goes, yeah. "Oh yeah, I found something. Do you want them?" It's like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's how it, that's how it is working with oh, my suppliers. They, 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 oh, we so. throw that away. I'm like, what are you talking about? People want that. But but you know, I think that's why the, the, I'm fascinated mm-hmm. by habitats. And Johnny and I have talked about this with, with like vernal pools and cre- seasonal creeks and things because there's all kinds Absolutely. of interesting fish that work their way into those unusual habitats that are seldom replicated in the Definitely. hobby so if i had space that's something for more also tanks, worth I'd playing with i think african setup right now um i'm, I'm slowly <laughs> convincing my wife to put something in the bedroom but we'll see <laughs> there's room for like 40 or 50 gallons of water right there. <laughs> there you go hey man you can always squeeze one more the, in there, right? the approach with that <laughs> was um doing things that required no filtration and so we have um you can check it out on my instagram page uh a fairly interesting no no fauna to speak of uh but uh you know little pool filled with with aquatic plants and um you know it's growing extremely well and and now we're we're exploring terrariums with uh with nothing other than light and um you know lights go on when when we get up and lights go off when we go to bed and uh you know, that's been one way, but if, if you can explore fish that don't really require filtration, uh, I think that's the way to win in the bedroom. <laughs> I don't know if that's the only for, way to win for, in the bedroom, but it's definitely one it way. <laughs> yeah. You walked oh, into that one, man. I had to take it. <laughs> you know, I, the other the other question too though that that sort of is a natural segue to uh, vivariums and sure. paludariums and frogs. Mike, you have a frog background. Johnny has a background with frogs. What's how do we how do we put those two type of habitats together? Uh, you think fish that, that the paludarium butter, idea butter is the, coming uh, the of way age now? Or? Fish and frogs. Correct. They, that's where they both meet. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that hobby has really taken off leaps <laughs> and bounds in yeah. recent years. Uh, I've seen some just absolutely spectacular paludariums out there. So that's been a lot of fun watching that develop, um, you know, and, and there's so many. It, that's kind of taken the nano hobby in freshwater and the dart frog hobby and blended them because you can do pretty well with that. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's a lot of fun. I personally, I'm mm-hmm. like. I don't like dart frogs anymore. I hate fruit flies. I just won't deal with fruit flies. So I'll never be. Dar- I'll never be dart frogs. No, I did yeah. them for many. Once years. they get loose oh, in your house, you'll never like them but again. Yeah, I love exactly. all kinds of other amphibians. Um, uh, yeah. I, well, that's actually. I'm. Well, I'm mud skippers. You were talking about too, right? I mean, they can kind of go in that type of setup. Really, it's empty right now and just calling me. So. That I think the mangrove root that you sent me today is going to seal the deal there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so good. I'm that that was the goal. Of, I wanted to see you do something. I with wish mud we skippers. could just get mud, but yeah. I'm going to have to do. I'm going to have to figure out how to substitute mud and make this a real mud bank terrarium with like something for them to burrow in. I might I might have to use pre-made burrows, but like mangrove roots, mud skippers, perhaps a brackish water killie, and um, like dagadai or something. 
Yep, and um, and then maybe okay. see what else. Maybe yeah, their yeah, crabs. I don't yeah. know. There's so much cool stuff in mangrove swamps and mangrove regions that, like, I just I love it. So I'm I'm I think that'll be fun to play Agreed. with. Uh, I've always said mm. that. I think that's one of the next unexploited yep. uh, parts of the hobby. Mike, my, my question to you though, before I forget, with your little mud skipper display, how would you filter something like that really effectively? Probably and, what I'll do and is make it look know, nice. Very small water moving pump, and just have it um, pump up through. I'll probably do some sort of false background. And have it just pump up and do a little water waterfall feature, and that's really essentially it. Mm-hmm. I think I'll what I'd like to do is I'm I'm probably gonna bug my friend Julian Sprung to get me some mud, <laughs> and we we always talk yeah. about that. Um, some like, prop. Oh yeah, yeah, I yeah. Meet him at like a trade yeah, show. We spend a while talking yep. about a cool mud substrate for like exactly that. You know, like because um, he's well, he's got his refugium substrate that's awesome. Yep. And, love that oh it's it's so cool <laughs> right i use that stuff i have yeah it's amazing i've been to his I have you been to his office it's have you seen the display that he has the it's time. so cool with i mean that's an yeah and just completely flies under the radar in the hobby <laughs> for some reason like people just don't realize yep. the things you can do with simple elements like mud and substrate we're playing around with a lot of <laughs> substrate we've been playing this has been the longest going development project forever but i'm trying to do Ooh. igarape uh, and 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 varzea type um substrates which i've been That's painstakingly awesome. hand mixing and so I'm we're gonna we're gonna have that. that soon and they are muds and dirt yeah and i think you know trying to really simulate the the, no. the podzolic <laughs> soils ever- and stuff like that. it's not not is as it easy enough? as i thought but but I think there's a no. But I think there's a whole lot there. I think, like you said, mud. Europe is obsessed with mud as I am, and I think Johnny's sure. equally obsessed. Mud, dirt, soil, substrate, roots—all those things. I think those oh, are such key elements to aquariums that are just—we're um, just starting to play gonna, with that and more and more. Funny is, um, I've been, I was, was, I was at Aqua Imports the other day, and their Exoterra sales rep, the Hagen sales rep, came in, and they got these really this cool new desert substrate that has mixed grains and holds heat really well and i was like and he was showing it and i was like geeking out a little bit i was like <laughs> oh man we need this for the freshwater hobby where is this <laughs> right 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 exactly i think there's I so. there's a wide open category there that you'll see more in but uh yeah i think so i think there's a lot to be said um but I, but I think more important is I think. Yeah, do you sense that hobbyists are getting just, a little more I mean, experimental nowadays, or you seeing that? What their wild habitats like is so different now than um, you know years ago, and it was like, oh, that fish is cool looking. I want that. You know, this is colorful. It'll go with my other fish because I I need a yellow one. You know, and and yeah. it's just changed so much. Where um, you know, I bring in right. um as much wild discus as I can possibly justify. But, um, you know, mostly I try to bring them in specifically for clients who want a group of a specific <laughs> one. And, you know, we kind of prearrange it because I don't, I don't have a lot of square footage for where wild discus, unfortunately, but um, I recently brought in a big group of uh, Brazil right, right, right. rivers for a client. And I mean, he, he came, he's local. So he came to visit my place. We talked for hours about, you know, getting them set up, my approach to handling them when they come in. And, um, and then we've spoken quite a bit after that and he's doing really well with them now, but like, you know, that's the kind of approach that dig deep that I think a lot of hobbyists are going for now. Um, that just didn't exist 15, 20 years ago. 
Yeah, I, th- I think that's the next phase of the hobby. I mean, Johnny, chime in here if you yeah. agree, but I think it's going from exactly. pure aquascaping to um, functional aquascaping really and functional aquariums. In nature. I mean, and that's, that's so cool because I've been, you know, I've wanted to, I've been playing with that my whole life. Uh, even when I had no idea how fish lived in nature, I'd try and read as much as I could and try and yeah. see what I could do. I mean, I was buying <laughs> bulk bottles right, of right. water extract when I was like 13, you know, um, just try because I was like, oh, these guys come from Tana Stain Waters. How do I do that? <laughs> So, yeah, it's really cool to see that kind of catching on. And I mean, right. I'm in a fair amount of Facebook groups and I've, because I've been bored, I've been photographing a lot and sharing content with groups. And, you know, that those are hit or miss, of course. But a lot of the, a lot of this, the species or genus specific groups or, you know, family right. specific groups, when I post stuff, there's so many good questions that people ask. It's really gratifying. I'm like, oh, man, that's a really good question. And I can I like that you're interested in knowing that, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's different. And it's, it used to be just, how do I get this fish? Now it's, you know, more about where does it come from? And, and, and of course you've been involved with some conservation efforts. So I think that, that, that awareness in the hobby uh, of of where they come from also enables people to study it and realize how imperiled some of these habitats are. And I think that's cool too. You know, just, I don't know if it connects the world. So in so many different ways, like um, it's really crazy that the fish hobby is so global. And I mean, it's very obvious right now more than ever because um, globally getting fish is just not happening. You know, flights are restricted. I I can't get much of anything right now. And it just goes to show you that like this hobby is, I mean, it's crazy the amount of countries that and places and little islands and lakes that our fish are just, on a yearly basis brought collected from transported to and it's just the intricacy of that supply chain is immense so um but it's cool to see more people interested because it was always like that but oh i imagine there wasn't really the hobbyist level interest or even their ability to know you know hobbyists weren't really able to i mean when i got fish from my fish supplier at the fish store when i was a teenager i just thought they came from fish mart <laughs> i didn't really think that this fish came from you know in agarpe and in, in <laughs> right 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 um little little uh, uh plug if we will for your business because you know you're doing it awesome sure. how do how does somebody somebody has a local fish store and and hopefully after this nightmare of uh lockdown comes through uh um, and and really wants to hook just, up with you uh, what's their best uh, way to get a hold of you my, uh, wholesale company email sales at um that's wholesale only of course uh, i mostly i mean honestly i mostly focus on the local market um just because it's you know I, it's just me it's a small scale operation i don't have 20 mm-hmm. people to pack orders i wish you know someday maybe but um i yeah, I kind of like the way it is right now. Um, Actually, there's a lot to be said for small for fish for me, and you want fish that you want to, you know, point of origin and lots of information, like detailed information about where it came from. Uh, Aqua Imports are my partners here in Boulder, and they're an awesome store that developed an online presence. And I bring in about, you know, eighty percent of the fish they sell come through me, and some of them come directly from my facility. I do quarantine and feeding and care on the stuff before nice. it goes out. So. Um, if you're a hobbyist, you're looking for something very specific, you know, reach out. Um, and if you ask a really complicated question, your email will go directly to me because, <laughs> um, Mike, the, the other Mike, Mike Parks <laughs> runs the store and, um, he handles most of the day-to-day communications with customers. But anytime there's a specific question like that, yep, it goes right to me and I enjoy it. I really do. <laughs> Heavy duty fish stuff. 
Very cool. That's and that's and that's a gift right there, Johnny. You have any other? No, uh, I mean, I think I think we've uh, we had a real treat. That was fun. Kept Mike longer than we thought. Yeah, we're gonna have to have you back, Mike. You're you're now you're now I'm in ready. the the, the, the tent fun. family. So unfortunately, you're gonna be called back weeks, at so. some future point to do more of these. Yep, this is great. Uh, wait until we do the two a.m. <laughs> lightning like round where we just call you up randomly. I am always, and, uh, always, always awake <laughs> at two a.m. So <laughs> don't tell. He'll me. be up bagging <laughs> stuff. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's cool. Now, Mike, um, people need to follow you on your I social do. channels too, because your pictures more, are up I, on I've, Facebook, Instagram's and you have an Instagram presence too. More video, um, but, so it's it lends yeah. itself really well to short videos and stuff. Um, I I avoided Instagram forever, and now I'm like, oh, this is kind of fun too. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah. But anybody wants to frame me, where the, where the world is. My yeah. profile is Mike Teach. Yeah. Mike, and then T U C C, just the first four letters of my last name, because it's a long last name. And um, you can follow the Amazonas Facebook page as well. The um, Amazonas Magazine shares a lot of my uh, photos and stuff. So, yeah. Uh... And just and your videos. I mean, again, guys, I could tell you firsthand <laughs> the videos and the photos. I've literally spent hours just geeking out, staring at the stills to see what's in the water and see where the fish are living. I mean, you, it takes a lot you are very patient to go into um, those stinky, frustrating amounts, but it's you know, lot, little it's water so holes cool. and take um, pictures. You're really rewarded by it. And I'm hoping, you know, if, if things go well this year, um, I'm looking at some travel coming up at the end of the year and, and the, and 2021. So hopefully I have a lot more video content. Yep. Cool. Cool. We're looking forward to seeing it. It'll be a lot of fun. Well, once again, Mike and uh, Johnny, of course, thanks so much for spending part of your day with me and everybody out there. If you have any questions, if you have future <laughs> yeah, questions for anything, Mike, um, let us know. Um, we'll get yeah, him back here. He's trapped now. That's awesome. So thanks again, everybody, for tuning in. And we look forward to 